You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. I am uh, really glad you're here today. We're sitting around tables, and, uh, and uh, usually there's, that usually makes a few people walk in and walk out, the introverts, but I'm glad you've stuck around today for this because we have food and that's worth it. Uh, we have been in a series called Restore, which is sort of a vision series. But in a vision series, you're supposed to talk about vision and values and the big stuff that you... But we wanted to take this opportunity this year in this particular moment to talk about what every vision and value we have as a church rests upon, and that is being disciples of Jesus. And so in these five weeks together, what we're doing is we're pursuing a shared vision for what it means to follow Jesus. If you use the word Christian in many contexts, I know in your jobs, in your homes, in your schools, it can elicit a lot of different responses, a lot of them negative, and rightfully earned in some cases as well. So we want to have a compelling and common vision as a community for what it means to follow Jesus beyond just a cultural identity that we've taken upon ourselves. So for the last three weeks, we've been giving our attention to uh, God's restoring work in us, but it's been focused on us as individuals. This is the path you're going to see here on the screen we're following. Jesus invites us to rest. He invites us to slow down, to be with him. We learn about the foundation of discipleship, which is we become like Jesus by being with him, by spending time with him. And as we learn to be with Jesus, we learn to see our hearts as they truly are. Just as the end of the psalm, we just pray teaches us to look towards. And as we learn to be with Jesus and look to our hearts, we see that we are called to bring our whole selves to God, not just the parts we like. Because sometimes we look inside our heart and we see that what is overflowing out of them is not exactly what we want, which calls us, as we talked about last week, to this thing called repentance. Repentance being not a negative word of shame and condemnation, but an invitation to rethink everything in light of our lives in Jesus. So we've focused on that as an individual work, but these last few weeks talk about how what God does moves outward, moves out of us as individuals into the way that we actually see and treat our neighbors, into the way we understand the world that we inhabit. Because when we read the Gospels, what we see is not a an individualistic sect of people that are, are following around a spiritual guru who sits on, on top of a mountain and makes everybody come to him to hear these magic words that makes everything better. That's not what we see. Jesus does ministry. Jesus lives life in community and in the world as it actually is. Think about that. God incarnate, in flesh, chose to live in community. So why shouldn't we? God's restoring work actually happens in our real-life relationships, not apart from them. It happens in the world we actually inhabit, not apart from the existence that we share together. And that happens in the context of people who don't think and look and act and vote and live like we do. In his book, From Isolation to Community, Miles Wernsey, he speaks of this isolation that we are sometimes formed into living he writes that being isolated is more than just being lonely, for in companionship we find a temporary reprieve. Isolation, meaning the condition of being 
structurally, morally, and spiritually estranged within creation is a more pervasive theological condition in which a person finds themselves cut off even when surrounded by other people. This is the environment that we are being formed into. We are being discipled into an isolation from one another, from God, and from ourselves. And if we're not careful, we as the church can actually, unintentionally or not, perpetuate these same ideas and these same structures of isolation. He goes on to point out that we uphold isolation in the church in two specific ways. One, by making our spiritual lives into this individualistic pursuit of self-improvement, just basically content creation for people to make us take, take in and, and, and make us feel better. But that's not the only way that we isolate ourselves. We also find isolation through the anonymity of the crowd, through coming in a room like this and feeling like we're in some ways connected to something bigger than us, but in reality, we are not seen or known or loved by anyone. We're hiding, isolated, and alone in the midst of a crowd. Some of you have been there before. Your primary understanding of church is you walk into a dark room, you take in the show, and then you go home, and no one knows you. No one cares for you. No one sees your story, your brokenness, your pain. No one understands where you actually are. So when we talk about these sort of issues, usually I do a sermon on community. I would bet I've probably in the six and a half years of this church talked about community more than anything else. But I don't think I have to convince you that community is good anymore, right? Right? I don't think anybody, if I said, is anybody think here community's bad, somebody's going to be like, no. Everyone knows that relationships are valuable and important. Everyone knows and desires to be loved and known and cared for. What we're longing for in community, the thing that we're actually after beneath everything is we're after belonging. We want a place and a people where we can belong. So here's the deeper question I want to ask today together. What are my barriers to belonging? What's keeping me from experiencing that type of community where I am known and loved and cared for? And I want to draw our attention to what is for many a familiar story in Luke chapter 19. And I'm just going to jump right in here to verse 1 because you're probably going to recognize these names in this story. Let's jump in here. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Now, the key points about Zacchaeus here is that he is a tax collector, so he was participating in the repeated, systematic economic oppression of his own people, partnering with Rome, this empire of oppression, and taking the money from his own people. And so how you made money as a tax collector is not only did you take the taxes from the empire, but in order to feed and take care of yourself, you would use any means necessary to get a little bit on top for yourself. So Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. He was the mob boss that was walking into these people who were mostly living in poverty and taking their hard-earned resources for the empire of Rome. He was over all of the other tax collectors in the area in Jericho, which was a wealthy city. 
And it throws in the detail for us that he was wealthy. To the original audience, they probably would have heard that said he was really good at extorting and coercing financial gain for himself. That wealth did not come honestly. Luke continues. He says he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, if you grew up around church, you know this to be a very popular kid story that stays, luckily, on a very surface level. Zacchaeus was a what? A wee little man, and a wee little man was he. We have a bunch of church people here, don't we? Lord. Usually, that's where it stops, because it's a cute idea, this short little guy, but my kids call him today short kings. Is that something the kids say these days? Where are they at? He's a short guy. He's climbing up in this tree, and that's about where we leave it, because it's a fun idea to think about this short dude up in the tree looking down from Jesus, looking down on Jesus. But like a lot of the Bible stories that we talk about when they're a kid, when you get older, when you actually read the Bible for yourself, there's, there's more happening, right? There's a lot going down in these stories as we grow into them ourselves. You see, I think there's other reasons our friend Zacchaeus is climbing in this tree. Think about it. If you were a man of that kind of seedy reputation in the city, if you were known to be one who extorts and it takes part in a corrupt empire over and against your own people, a crowd is the last place you want to be. Because if those people see you, guess what? They could come after you. They could come with retribution. At the very best, they could come with shame and rejection. If he's out in the open, Zacchaeus is vulnerable in this place. And so, a great place to see Jesus is a tree, but my friends, a tree is also a great place to not be seen. This is a sycamore fig tree. I always heard growing up it was a sycamore tree, which around here is a really tall tree, but in the actual Middle East, the sycamore fig tree is more of a round, short tree, and so it would have been easy for him to climb up to and very easy in the full and lushness of the tree to hide in himself. I think it's very interesting that it's a fig tree. Where else do we see a fig tree in the Scriptures? Adam and Eve, when they feel the shame in Genesis 3, they sew together outfits made of fig leaves. When Zacchaeus goes to hide in his shame, where does he go? A sycamore fig tree. He chooses to see but not be seen. And I think this lies at the heart of his actions in his own story, but I think it's one of the biggest temptations that plague you and I as modern spiritual people. We want to see but not be seen. Our greatest spiritual temptation, I would argue, is trying to see in this world but yet not be seen by others. Trying to experience but then stay unnoticed. We can know that for sure, that he was feeling that shame. And I'd venture to guess that beneath the tough exterior of a tax collector, Zacchaeus was wrestling with an incredible amount of shame. He probably feared judgment and retaliation for those victims who he probably saw pass by that day. And like so many of us, Zacchaeus, he's caught in this tension between being 
very spiritually hungry, wanting to experience God, but also at the same time knowing that if I step into the light, I'm afraid of being rejected. I want to know God, but I don't want the people who are usually associated with God to be near me. I don't want to be rejected. Most of us have arrived at a story like that honestly. Week in and week out, you and I, we gather in a room like this, not always with chairs and tables like this, but we arrive with that tension of knowing from many stories in here, there's spiritual trauma. There are wounds from the past. You have experienced people who have been associated with Jesus, who have made you feel rejection, who have made you feel ashamed. And so you live very much in that tension between a spiritual hunger and a fear of what would happen if people truly knew you. And the story could have ended here. Jesus could have followed along with the crowd, noticed Zacchaeus, but left him be. Allowed the crowd who clearly wanted to be near him, clearly wanted to hear what he had to say, to be the center of the story. But Jesus does something radically different in this moment that should garner our attention. Luke continues, it says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now here's the good news as we gather today. In our hiding in our shame, and what you and I feel, the places in us that we are afraid to see and be seen, Jesus sees us. Even when we think we're hiding, Jesus sees us. Even when we think there's no way anyone could know what I feel and think and struggle with and wrestle with inside, Jesus sees that you, not the you on the surface not the you in hiding. Jesus looks and sees Zacchaeus right where he actually is. And instead of passing him by, instead of leaving this man in his isolation and shame, Jesus responds with an invitation. He does something that I love to do. He invites himself over for dinner. Jesus radically invites himself over for dinner. I encourage you this week as a spiritual practice, invite yourself over to someone's house for dinner and see how that goes and say, that's what Jesus does. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. If you didn't know, if you haven't heard from this story or from the context, this is a scandalizing thing for Jesus to do. Absolutely scandalous. And that culture to share a meal with someone was an act of solidarity and acceptance. In sharing a meal with Zacchaeus, Jesus was making an incredibly controversial statement in that moment. And the people who were following around him and were probably beginning to question his sanity at this moment, his, his morals at this moment, were probably thinking, are you on the side of the oppressed or the oppressor, Jesus? because you're walking into the house that was built on my money. 
You're walking up to the table and eating the food that came from my taxes on that empire that is pushing me down. Jesus chose a scandalous response there. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, Howard Thurman, he speaks to this. He says, to be seen in their company meant a complete loss of status and respect in the community. The tax gatherer has no soul. He had long since lost it. When Jesus became a friend to the tax collectors and secured one as his intimate companion, it was a spiritual triumph of such staggering proportions that after 1,900 years, it still defies a rational explanation. We, too, find ourselves in modern times, if we're honest, uncomfortable with the company that Jesus keeps. There are people that we would rather not Jesus associate with, right? There are people that we would rather him hold at an arm's length. You should continue to be scandalized by the company that Jesus is keeping, by the people that he chooses to love that we hold at a distance. Jesus is still transgressing the boundaries that we prefer he not cross at all. The question is for us, why? Why would Jesus do this? Here's how the story ends. It says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because of this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Elsewhere he says, I did not come for the well, I came for the sick. I came for those in need. You know who Jesus clearly isn't needed by? The well to do, the self-sufficient. But you know who Jesus came for? He came for broken, lost, rejected people like you and me. Not for the people who have it all together. What we see in the story is what we call the gospel the good news of what we gather around week in and week out. We don't have a record of the conversation of what actually happened at this meal, but what we do know that instead of fear and isolation that had imprisoned this man Zacchaeus for so long, he comes out of this meal with the loving presence of Jesus. And the result here is repentance, and not just an inner repentance of, oh, I feel much better about myself now, not just a repentance that where I feel bad about things, a repentance that radically changes his own heart and the hearts and lives of those who lived in that city. What followed is nothing less here than economic justice than money and resources being returned to the people that rightfully own them. This would have changed the trajectory of families for generations by one man's repentance. And the same is true for us. What we see here powerfully and prophetically in this story is the heart of the gospel, the good news we believe in, the communities, this remarkable truth that we hold to today as we gather around these tables. Belonging is often the path to believing and coming, but becoming together. Belonging is often the pathway that we move forward into in order to believe and become like Jesus. Instead of him 
being confronted by Jesus with his sin, Zacchaeus finds acceptance, and in acceptance, in the solidarity of Jesus, in spite of the brokenness that he lived and felt, Zacchaeus was transformed from the inside out by being and finding belonging in this moment. So under normal circumstances, as we think about this story in this week, it would be a week where I got up here and said, well, now that I talk about that, let's talk about the ways that we do have community. And I want to talk about community. And I want to get you connected in forms of community here at Restoration. There's many different ways that you can do that. But in my experience, that's too low a bar for the vision of what we're being called into. Just getting you in a room of people where you could just be as the same amount of isolated as you are otherwise... Our aim is to create opportunities where we can belong and become together in Jesus. Where you and I can experience what Zacchaeus experienced. Being welcomed into the presence of Jesus before we get our act together. Before we got our stuff in line. And out of that acceptance and belonging, finding the life in our own hearts and minds transformed forever. That's why we gather around tables like this and why we share meals. It's because we are looking for opportunities to build into our community a sense of belonging. It's why you're going to see in the coming weeks and months an, an emphasis on how we welcome others and our welcome wagon and, and the folks that come and welcome you at the door and make coffee. We're trying, we're trying, we're trying to make this a place of belonging. Now, how that happens is not as important as why. I, I think what makes community possible is us together having a commitment to come out of isolation, to come out of our fig trees and step into a room like this in relationships like this around the table of Jesus, sharing our journey, our restoration, our wholeness in Christ. And that's what I'm praying for as we move into a time of response here today. I'm praying for our church that we would be a people who wouldn't live as if we've already arrived. That we wouldn't show up in a room like this as if we have everything together. The mask could come off. That like Zacchaeus, we could see and be seen by Jesus. And together as we share tables and find belonging, that that belonging bears fruit and the life that we are called to in love. I want to close with this beautiful quote from Sky Jathani. He writes these words. He said, Our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing, radiating the light of heaven. And our dinner tables are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. And our church's people should find rest from their battle for acceptance and release from the lie that they are nothing more than the goods that they possess. When we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and begin to be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. Holy Spirit, I pray in an encounter of belonging this morning. That those of us who have been in hiding, who have lived in fear, 
who have longed with spiritual hunger to see and experience God, but have, out of the fear of being rejected, out of the fear of shame, have stayed in hiding. May you give us the courage to step into the light, to step into the loving presence of Jesus. Lord, you're still inviting yourself into our lives, into our homes, into our stories in ways that surprise us, in ways that upend our expectations. So may we, as we share this time together, may we, Jesus, find the belonging that can only come by you, Holy Spirit. And I just pray for our church in a world that puts up so many different barriers between us. Make us radically different, Jesus. Make us okay with the messiness of belonging as we walk into becoming like you with one another and the real parts of our stories in the hurting and in the healing. You are already present with us, among us, at work, speaking. May we respond to you today in the name of Jesus.